We're in week four of the seven churches of Revelation, and I want to invite you this morning to turn to Revelation chapter two. We've been spending a lot of time because these letters that Jesus wrote to these different churches, these seven different churches in Asia Minor, he wrote them and they were very brief. They're very concise. And so each of them are kind of a part of chapter two and a little bit into chapter three as well. And you know, the fact of the matter is, as we talk about wars and rumors of wars, Compromise is a part of progress. I think about the opposite side of that. If we're going to have progress in this world, in our lives, compromise is one of the things that we need to embrace to get deals done, to get resolutions ratified. Compromise is kind of a necessary action in our lives. Partnerships are formed. Allies are formed through compromise. And nowhere do we see this more true than in the institution of marriage. You know this to be true. Compromise is a part of what makes marriages successful. My wife and I compromise on almost a daily basis. I admit that I'm wrong, and she agrees with me. And, uh, you know, we both have to suck up our pride, and both of us have to kind of admit that the other might have have a a place in this, but uh, it works for us. That compromise works in our marriage, and we are still allies and not enemies 25 years later. And I'm so grateful for that. You can probably look at your marriage and you can say, the only thing that has kept us together is Jesus Christ and compromise. That's what keeps allies from becoming enemies. And so compromise is certainly not always a bad thing. Two different parties can, can walk away happy because of compromise. But what happens, my question is, what happens when a church marries itself to culture through compromise. Now, I want to give you a spoiler alert this morning. You already know this. The spoiler alert is this. Culture, church, and compromise. They are three words that do not mix well together. They're words that are like water and blood and oil. They just don't mix. And when you throw the church into the culture and you throw it into compromise, the church ultimately becomes diluted. And so I want to talk about this morning, if you remember last week, we talked about a church in Smyrna that was right on the coast of Western, modern day Western Turkey, and it was a coastal town that had a lot of commerce, that had a lot of wealth, and it was a major city in that region that refused to compromise. And because they refused to compromise, they suffered Um, almost unthinkably, they were impoverished. They were a poor people that Jesus warned them that persecution was coming to them because they stood for their faith, but they did exactly that. They stood for their faith. They didn't compromise and Jesus commended them. He had no word of rebuke in Revelation chapter two to the church of Smyrna. Now this morning, we're going to move about 50 miles north of Smyrna to a city called Pergamum. And Pergamum takes a little bit of a different route in their walk with the Lord, in their history as a church. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background as, as to what where Pergamum was, what it was all about. Like I said, it's about 50 miles north of Smyrna. It's about 15 miles off of the coast. And so uh, Pergamum was a major city that was the center of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor at one point in time until the city of Smyrna came along and kind of 
uh, I guess, replaced it because Smyrna had a port. It was a port city. And Pergamum was about 14, 15 miles off of the coast. Um, but even though Smyrna kind of replaced it as a major city in the Roman Empire, it still had a lot of influence. It had a lot of affluence, which we'll talk about in a moment. So Pergamum had kind of two portions of their city. There was a lower city, and then there was the Acropolis, or the upper city. And this upper city was on the top of a mountain that was about 1,300 feet in sea elevation above the lower city. It was a beautiful, beautiful city. It was a, a wonderful city that was fortified, and it was a perfect location for a military fortress. And it gave them like automatic, uh, the automatic upper hand if an enemy ever decided they wanted to try to infiltrate the city. They had the upper hand because they had, uh, they had the city, they had the walls, they had the, 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 the elevation, so to speak. And so Pergamum was a cosmopolitan city. It was a military city. It was also a city of tremendous influence, uh, holding a tremendous amount of power and influence in the Roman Empire. And their partnership with Rome, actually along with their export of paper, you may not know this, probably don't know this. I didn't know it until this week when I started studying it. Up until the second century BC, papyrus was what everybody wrote on when they wrote letters, when they wrote scripture, when they wrote books, whatever it might be, it was papyrus. But then a man named Eumenes II, who was from the city of Pergamum in the second century BC, discovers that you can extract pulp from wood and you can turn it into paper. And so paper becomes the major export of the city of Pergamum and they become extremely wealthy because of this export. In fact, um, they became obsessed with the written word. They, They became obsessed with books and acquiring information. And history tells us that the city of Pergamum had one of the largest libraries in the history of the known world up until that time with over 200,000 volumes of books. So this was a city that had influence. This was a city that was educated and it had wealth. They were fiercely devoted to emperor worship as well. Uh, Pergamum was the, the first city that was granted the right to be able to erect a temple in honor of the Caesar or the emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus, who ruled at Jesus' birth, he granted the city of Pergamum Pergamum, the the right to be able to build a temple in honor of him in order to worship him. And this was a massive point of civic pride in this city. These were a proud people, proud of their heritage, proud of their city, proud of their religion, proud of their partnership with Rome, proud of their wealth, all of these things. Pergamum had become a city that was a center of worship in the Roman Empire. Now, with its polytheistic worship of the Roman gods, it permeated through the entire empire, and it demanded that everyone participate in the worship of the gods. So if the mass of society all participates in the worship of these Roman gods, and then there's a small sect of people that did not participate called Christians— Right? Like they decided that Jesus was Lord of all and we are not going to cast our allegiance to Caesar. We are not going to pray to Zeus. We're not going to worship these false gods. We, fo- we worship Jesus and Jesus alone. They decide they're going to go a different route, this small group of Christians. Well, then the society looks at them and says, man, when the economy crashes, when enemies infiltrate, who are we going to blame? Well, it must be the Christians 
because they don't worship and they don't appease the gods. So it must be their fault. So you can imagine for this small group of believers in the city of Pergamum, the amount of pressure that they were under to capitulate to society, to compromise in order to, to, to basically survive, if not thrive. And then things didn't get much better as the city of Pergamum advanced through the years. In 312 AD, you might know that date to be significant in Christian history. The, the emperor of Rome, his name was Constantine, he mandated Christianity as a protected state religion. And what that did is that mandate made religious freedom accessible for the Christians. And you would think that that would be something that would be highly positive. You would think that that would be something that would only have positive results and consequences. But as a result, it did give, it did give religious freedom to the Christians, but it also introduced a soft version of Christianity in the city of Pergamum in particular. Because it wasn't faith or personal relationship or even personal conviction. It wasn't belief necessarily in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that defined these so-called Christians. They just were Christian by name alone. And they didn't have a lot of religious conviction, but they had a lot of ritual religious experience. And so Jesus writes this letter in Revelation chapter 2 to the city at Pergamum, and it serves as a rebuke to modern-day churches that have kind of gone woke. It serves as a rebuke to modern-day churches who have compromised and become liberal in their theology. When we walk away from orthodox Christianity and orthodox traditional values and doctrines, this is the rebuke that Jesus has for his church. But it's also a warning for churches very much like Crossroads, who I believe has remained faithful to Christian doctrine. I believe still faithfully preaches the word of God. But we are in a culture that wants us to compromise. We are in a culture that wants to drag us away from our traditional values and the preaching of God's word as ultimate truth. And there's a temptation that even we face as a church to compromise in order to go along with culture. And so this, this, this letter serves as a rebuke and it also serves as a warning to us today. And so I want to read what Jesus has to say to this church. Re- Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And this is what he says And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the, the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have, you have some there who are, teach, or who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with a sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus is writing this letter and he's telling the people at Pergamum in this church, he's telling them what to expect, what is to come. And based on what he said 2,000 years ago, 
through John the Apostle who wrote down the words of Christ, he is saying that there are things that we can expect from Jesus even today as well. And he's delivering a word to that church and he's delivering a word to this church. And he says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So Crossroads, do you have an ear to hear what Jesus says to us this morning? Because this is what we can expect. This is what we should expect from Jesus based on Revelation chapter 2. Number one, if you're taking notes, we don't have blanks this morning um, necessarily, but you can write a few things down. My first point is this. We can expect Jesus to send a word of truth. If we look back at verse 12, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You know, in this moment, Jesus is establishing his authority with this church. He's coming to them with authority. He's not coming to them like a soft, cuddly, spotless lamb of God. He is delivering a message to them as the fierce lion of Judah. This is the Jesus that is addressing them, that is a righteous judge. This is the Jesus that is jealous for his church. And I know a lot of times we prefer, as modern-day Christians, because of our sensibilities, we, refer, we prefer Jesus to be just the Lamb of God, who is soft and cuddly. We prefer Jesus to be meek and mild. But what we often need is we need Jesus to be the Lion of Judah as well. We need not only for Jesus to be meek and mild, but we need for him to be mean and wild sometimes. We need him to be a strong defender. We need him to be a warrior who devours his enemies. We need him to be a father who protects us when we're lost and reigns us in when we begin to wander. You know, I have three daughters of my own. And certainly I would do anything for them. And all I want for them more than anything else, I tell them this all the time. I don't ask for them to be wealthy. I don't ask for them to have favor. I don't ask for them to have successful and lucrative careers. I don't even ask for them to stay close to Mansfield, Ohio, or for them to have safety in this world. What I pray for and what I let them know is important to me is that they follow Jesus Christ no matter what. But these girls, these three girls, you can imagine the amount of estrogen that is in my house, okay? Um, Sometimes it's really emotional in the four walls of my house. And every once in a while, they need a tender embrace. And as a good father, I have to slow down every once in a while and just hold them. I have to slow down and just give them a hug. I have to slow down and just remind them that I am always there for them and I love them no matter what. But you know what? On the flip side of that, what they need as well is they need a father who is a fierce warrior. They need someone who will bring a strong hand to guide them. They need a a warrior father who will fight for them when they can't fight for themselves. A father who will correct them when they start to stray. And every once in a while, I have to do that with my girls. And Jesus, in this moment, this is the picture that he's giving us. He is fighting for his children. He is fighting for them so that they will stay pure, so that they will continue to follow after him and not compromise. He's fighting for them with his words, even if they don't like what they're about to hear. Because Jesus is about to set them straight. He's about to give them a hard word here in just a few moments. And so he reminds them of his word and his authority. He says, I have the two-edged sword. So what do we know? What do we know is like a two-edged sword according to Scripture? It's God's word, right? 
God's word is like a two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, you don't have to turn there. It says this, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, this is what the word of God is. But I want you to remember who the word of God is as well. It's not only that it's a sharp, double-edged sword, but Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. Jesus' words are true and trustworthy. And even though they can cut us, even though they can convict us, even though they fillet open our hearts, and I know that's kind of a graphic image, but they open up our hearts and they expose our motivations and our intentions and our deeds, and they convict us, they are also words of life. And his word is powerful and his word is perfect. Now, by contrast, the reason I share all of that is because in the Roman Empire during this day, in the book of Revelation, in the city of Pergamum, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was considered the deity with all of the power. He was the one with all of the authority. And he granted authority to his governors to rule with the sword. Now, Governors in every region throughout the Roman Empire, they, some of them would move from city to city. They would, they would kind of govern, govern regions, and they were given the power um, of what we call us gladii, okay? I know it's a weird term, um, us gladii, and it means this. They were given the right of the sword. They had the power. These governors had the power of life and death. They could pardon, and they could punish through execution, And the symbol of their power and their authority came with what? A double-edged sword. Us gladii was a double-edged sword. And they carried this with them. This was the symbol of their power and authority given to them by Caesar and by Rome. They carried around this sword everywhere they went, this us gladii. And it meant, I have all authority. I have all power. It was given to me by Caesar himself. And Jesus says in this moment, he's like, listen, that's where we're going deeper here, way beneath the surface of what we read. Jesus is saying, I'm the one with all authority. I'm the one with the power. My word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Any sword that a Roman governor might carry, any word that Caesar might, um, might dictate to you, understand that my word is more sharp, my word is more true, I am the authority. So when you hear my voice, when you hear me speak, listen to my words. Pay close attention. Because when you hear my words, you hear the words of God. And I have something to say. And God sent a word to this church, right? Anyone who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The second thing that we can expect from Jesus is we can expect Jesus to honestly evaluate your faith. He will honestly evaluate your faith. Look at verses 13 through 15 as we break this down a little bit further in Revelation 2. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, You have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
so also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so Jesus is going on further. and He's saying, listen, I know where you live. I know this city. I know what you suffer through. He knew the pagan culture. He knew the the polytheistic uh, worship. He knew the wealth and the arrogance and the pride and the immorality. He knew the debauchery that happened in that city. He knew how difficult it was for Christians to survive in Pergamum, to remain set apart from the rest of culture. He says to them, I know where you live, and I know Satan keeps his throne there. I mean, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Satan keeps his throne in your city. Now, that's not super clear, again, on the surface. Now, there are many historians. I did a lot of study this week. There's a lot of historians. There's a lot of Bible scholars and academics that believe different things about what Jesus was referring to when he said where Satan's throne is. But I believe that there's a possibility that he could be referencing one of several different things. Think about this. In the city of Pergamum, where... uh, Worship was polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. There was an altar to Zeus. And that altar was somewhere around 170 feet wide, and it was 40 feet tall. In fact, archaeologists discovered this years and years ago. They actually dug the whole thing up. They discovered it, and then they transported it to Berlin, where they built a museum around it. In East Berlin, you can go there. It's been there since 1910. This altar to Zeus is still Um, standing today. And it's a museum that you can go and you can observe. But at the time, this altar to Zeus was in the city of Pergamum. And Zeus was believed to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. Sound familiar? Maybe Jesus was referring to the temple to Caesar Augustus. We talked about how he he granted the right to Pergamum to be able to, to construct this temple. Augustus, Caesar, believed himself to be the son of God. To be, to be the Prince of Peace, to be the good news that was to the people. Does that sound familiar? Maybe Jesus was addressing the temple of Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. And we know Jesus, we know God to be the God of all wisdom. He is all-knowing and all-wise. But there was a temple to Athena there who was the God of wisdom. Maybe Jesus was addressing the temple to Dionysus, who was the God of wine and who was the God of the arts the God of theater, the God of life and living and party and good times. In fact, there was an amphitheater in the city of Pergamum that still exists to this day. You can see it in pictures. It's on the side of the Acropolis. It's this massive amphitheater on the side of this hill, this, this mountain. And it's said that, that it could hold over 10,000 people. And the acoustics were so good that you obviously didn't need a microphone. And you could speak and the people in the very top seats would be able to hear you clearly. And this is where culture was set. This is where the arts were perfected. This is where entertainers and artists and writers and actors set the direction and the course of the society. This temple to Dionysus. There was also the temple of Demeter, who was the goddess of grain, who they believed brought everyone their daily bread. So there are all these gods. And then there is the god whose name was Asclepius. And in, uh, in the city of Pergamum, there was a hospital. And this wasn't necessarily a temple or an altar, but there was a hospital where Asclepius was worshipped. He was the god of medicine. He was the god of healing. And what symbolized Asclepius was a staff that had a serpent that intertwined it. Have you ever seen that before? 
You think about what uh, symbolizes medical doctors to this, to this day. What do we see? A staff with a serpent that is uh, wrapped around it. That was the God whose name was Asclepius. And we think about scripture. We think about all the way back to the garden. What did the serpent represent? Satan. So I'm giving you all this context, right? Because Jesus says, I know where you live. I know that Satan keeps his, his, his presence there. I know that Satan dwells there. This city, Pergamum, was kind of like Hollywood. It was like Las Vegas. It was like New Orleans at Mardi Gras. And it was all wrapped up into one. This place was full of sin. It was full of evil. Have you ever been to one of those cities? L.A., you ever been to Hollywood? You ever been to Las Vegas or uh, maybe New Orleans during Mardi Gras or maybe even not? You ever felt that oppression in any of those cities and thought to yourself, man, there is evil here. I can't quite explain it, but there feels like a dark cloud of oppression over this place. This is what Pergamum was like. It was evil. So think about the conflict of these Christians. Everything that they believed about Jesus to be true was being worshipped in some other God. And they were having to make decisions about who they were going to worship. And Jesus doesn't give them a pass on compromise. He says, I know where you live, but he doesn't just say, it's okay. Go ahead and go with culture. He doesn't give them that pass. He doesn't overlook their sin, even though life was hard for them. For the most part, these Christians were commended for their faith. But there was a, a small group of them, a sect of the Christians in the church that were kind of compromising. They were... Um, and compromising and marrying themselves to the ways of the world. And persecution was coming to them. You know, in Smyrna, we talked about this last week, persecution was coming, but it had already arrived in Pergamum. You see Antipas, one of the brothers of the faith, one of the people that was a member of this church, he was murdered. He was martyred for his faith when Jesus called him a faithful witness until the very end. Folks, Man, compromise in the church is not an option for us. Compromise is not something we should ever flirt with. When the church tries to look just like the world in order to win the world, what ends up happening is the light of the church only diminishes in the world when we try to look just like it in order to win it. We have to be separate. We have to be different. We have to be set apart, and we have to be sanctified. And there was a portion of the people in this church that said, we're just going to go along with culture. We're just going to go along to get along. In fact, some of them held to the teachings of Balaam. And I'm going to share the whole story. If you want to learn his whole story, you can look at Numbers chapter 22 to 25. And then in chapter 31, it tells the story of Balaam. Many of you know he rode on a donkey that spoke to him, and that might be the extent of what you remember about his story. But what you may not remember is that Balaam was kind of a perfect picture of a prophet of compromise. He was a prophet for hire. Okay, so he was a prophet of God who definitely was not always a righteous man. He kind of like wavered between two worlds. And so the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness and the king of the Moabites, who was Israel's arch enemy, his name was Balak. He was the king. And he comes to Balaam and he knows that Balaam can be bought. And he offers Balaam a significant amount of money to go to the Israelites into their camp and to curse them so that when the Moabites went to attack them, they would be able to overcome. But every time Balaam, Balaam gets paid off, he goes to the Israelites, he stands on the outskirts of camp, and he starts to speak cursing. But instead of cursing, 
The only thing that would come out is blessing. The Lord wouldn't let him curse his people. So he continued to bless them. He goes back to Balak and he says, I can't curse them. He's like, well, that's not what I paid you to do. I paid you to curse them. He's like, I can't. I'm trying and it only comes out as blessing. But this is what Balaam does. He compromises. He says, listen, if you really want to overtake these people, if you want to see them crumble from within, then you just offer up compromise. You send your women. Send your Moabite women into the camp. The Moabite women who have no regard for the God of Israel, who have very different standards, very different morals, send them into the camp and let them have sexual relations with the men and they will introduce food that is offered to idols and seduce them into this immorality. And when you seduce them, they will crumble from within. So Balak did this thousands of years ago and it succeeded. Satan is doing this today in the church, and it's succeeding. People getting seduced into sexual immorality, into uh, idol types of worship. Maybe, they, maybe they're not carved idols as we think of in the Bible or throughout history, but we have our idols, and we are seduced into thinking that these things will provide for us and protect us, and we give our worship to the things that we esteem high in our life. And we've been seduced into a false morality, into a false worship of these gods. And it causes the church to crumble from within. There was also another group in the church called the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans and what they believe and what they held to is a little bit more difficult to discern. There's a lot of conjecture about what they actually believe. But my understanding is this, is that the Nicolaitans were the people that said, you know what, God has given me a special word. He's given me a a special revelation. And so God told me that I can do this. And what they would tell people that God told them didn't align with Scripture. And they were basically telling the people, like, hey, man, God told me it was okay. It was okay to partake in this. It was okay to to not follow this passage of Scripture or this teachings of the church. God told me it was okay because he understands, because he is patient, and because he is long-suffering. He knows how difficult it is to live in our culture. He won't mind. He'll understand. He wouldn't want me to struggle. That's what the Nicolaitans believed, and that's what they were holding to. And I would tell you this morning, friends, you cannot hold on to the world and to the words of Christ. You have to choose one or the other. And the reason I believe the church is struggling right now in so many ways, not necessarily Crossroads, but the church in America in particular, the reason it's struggling is because we have a a, you know, a group of people who are desperately trying to hold on to the pleasures of this world. They want a little bit of Jesus, but they're holding tightly to the world as well. And they don't want to let go. And their faith and their walk with the Lord is being compromised. And the church is crumbling from within. If you remember what Elijah said back in 1 Kings chapter 18, when he spoke to the Israelites on Mount Carmel, he said this, he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Friends, Jesus will not share the throne of your heart. You cannot waver. Either he is God of all or he is not at all. Either his word is all true or it is not. You don't get a choice to to, to say, I believe this about God's word to be true, but I don't necessarily hold to this. Either his whole word is true or it isn't. We don't get to have Jesus plus the world. We don't get to pick and choose what we believe and what we accept. And the church in America is confused right now because it's, it's trying to figure out who does it want to listen to. Does it want to listen to the words of Christ or does it want to listen to the words of culture? 
And so the church is compromising. And Jesus comes along and says, that's not how this works. You cannot compromise. Because I am the way, I am the truth. And if you want to be my disciple, if you truly love me, you will follow my commands. You will do exactly what I say, even if it costs you. You don't get the the pleasure and the luxury of compromise. If it costs you your life even, you must obey me and my words. Thirdly, we can expect Jesus to give us a corrective plan of action. This is what he does further on in verse 16. He gives a corrective plan of action. He says this, simply, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This church in Pergamum was losing its way. The the, the cancer of compromise was infiltrating and it was eating up the church from within. It was, the church was in desperate need of revival. And I would tell you today, as you look around, as you look around at the, um, I guess the landscape of the church 2,000 years later, it's losing its way. And I think every one of us would probably agree, if I asked by a show of hands this morning, how many of you want to see revival? I'm guessing that every one of you would shoot your hands straight up in the air. We all want to see revival because revival is what we need. And if you look at every great revival throughout the history of Christendom, starting with the Protestant Reformation, to the Great Awakening, to the most recent revival at Asbury University, the Asbury Revival, every one of them had one common ingredient. It's what Jesus commanded this church in Pergamum to do. And it's really simple. It's one thing. Therefore, repent. Repent. Now we all, I know, I know Christian, we all get lost along the way. I know we all stray. We all take our eyes off of Jesus. We look this way and that, and we get confused, and we start buying into the lies of the enemy, and we're, we're lured into the temptations of the evil one. It's easy for us to get distracted. And just because we get distracted, and just because we lose our way, does not mean that we're not Christians, right? Just because we still sin doesn't mean that we aren't Christians. But what happens when we repent, is it shows us, it shows God that we are willing to start again. We are willing to admit when we have gotten off of the path and we need to get back onto the path. In fact, Martin Luther, he once said this, the progress of the Christian life is always to begin again. That's what repentance is. And I think each and every one of us would probably agree with the statement that sinners need to repent. We need repentance at every level of society. But guess what? Repentance usually starts at the level of God's people. Revival starts at the level of God's people. Revival starts with Christians. In fact, in Zechariah in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, uh, Therefore say to them, Zechariah, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God is calling his people to return to him. He's calling them to repentance. And he says, I will return to you. If we want revival in our land, guess what? It starts right here, right now. It doesn't start in the White House. It starts in sanctuaries just like this, amongst God's righteous people who have maybe started to walk away, who have 
veered off of the path of righteousness and have decided that here is where I place my stake in the sand. Here is where I say no more. This is where I say I no longer want to partake in the sin. I no longer want this addiction to control me. I no longer want to be confused and to hold on to the world and to hold on to Jesus for far too long. I've been trying to do this on my own and it's not working. I need to turn back to Jesus. This is what the world needs from us. What if our repentance determined the revival of our nation? Think about the responsibility that comes with that. You know, a man named Frank Bartleman, he once wrote this. He said, the depth of our repentance will determine the depth of our revival. And every one of us have been called to repent. So why do we refuse to do that? Why is it so difficult for us to fall down on our faces before God and admit that we have sinned, to admit that we have strayed off the path, to change our minds about our sin and to get back on that path? Why does our pride get in the way? Why don't, when was the last time, folks, you fell on your face before God and said, you know what? The Bible's talking about repentance and usually I think of other people. I think of the world that is lost and straying away from God and running from God as fast as it can. When is the last time you looked at the Bible and you looked at this command to repent and said, that's speaking to me? When was the last time you were broken over your sin and knew you needed to repent? Man, to the church who fails to do this, to the church who fails to repent, Jesus has a strong word for this church. He says, I will come to you soon and I will war against the unrepentant sinner. And I don't know about you, but I do not need Jesus coming after me in that way. I do not want his correction in that way because when he comes to correct his children, he often comes swiftly. He often comes unexpectedly. And sometimes that correction can be painful. So Christian, don't war against him. Christian, don't fight against that idea of repentance Turn back to Christ. Let's be a church that repents. Because to the believer who is faithful, the believer who abides, the believer who endures, and the believer who conquers, we can expect, number four, we can expect Jesus to promise eternal rewards. We can expect Jesus to promise eternal rewards. Verse 17 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the believer who endures through suffering and remains pure, Christ promises a reward that's worth the struggle. And the struggle is real. The struggle is real in our lives. We live in a compromising culture. And the culture wants us to bend to its whims. And compromise is super appealing to the church just so we can stay in step with culture. Just so we can keep favor and we can keep whatever standing we might have politically and regionally and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. We just want to be accepted. And so we're tempted to to compromise. It's appealing. But Jesus says to the one who overcomes and conquers, I'm going to give you a gift. And that gift is me. He is our reward. John 6.35 says, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. 
Jesus is saying to his church, he's saying to his people, I am sufficient for you. I am all you need. I will be your provider. I will be your protector. When you have me, you will never thirst. You will never hunger again. You will be fulfilled and sustained in me. This is your reward if you will just overcome. And so my question to you this morning is, if Jesus never promised you another reward in this life or the next, would he still be enough for you? Is that still enough of a reward for you to say, even though the world may come at me, even though the world may cause me to suffer and persecute you, persecute me, even though the world, they may take my life, still I will follow Christ. Is Jesus enough? He wants to be your eternal reward. Crossroads, as we close out, I pray that we will be a church that refuses to give in to compromise. I pray that we will be a church that stays faithful to the teachings of God's word. I pray that we will be a church that when, um, when rebuked, when corrected by Jesus, we will return to him. We will get back on the path. We will repent of our sins. And I pray that we will be a church because we follow him faithfully and we conquer in the name of Jesus Christ that we will receive eternal rewards on the other side of eternity.